From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, I hope you've all had a great week and welcome to Friday here on EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, is in the house ready to answer your questions. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1205-271-2985 and you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com i'm jack williams michael mccall producing the program your call screener is matt gubensky and ace mckay handling our social media efforts so if you're watching us on youtube or facebook live you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology here at EWTN, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing pretty good. Starting good. to get into Lent like most of us. Yeah, it's the first, uh, the f- second Friday of Lent, the end of the first week of Lent. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll uh, sundown tomorrow. We'll start ending, entering into the the second week of Lent, and by the end of next week, we'll be into March, and we won't see another new month without Easter coming. No, we won't. Um, it's a, a rare year for that, but uh, that'll be it. That'll be it. Not as early as it could be, though. February 6th, my son's birthday, I believe, is the earliest date for Ash Wednesday. For so. Ash Wednesday and March 22nd, I believe, for the first mm-hmm. uh, for the first of uh Easter. Yeah, very good. Got an email here from Gary, and he says, One of the claims atheists make is that there's no evidence for God's existence. Why doesn't God reveal himself in a manner that would appease the atheists and leave no question about his existence? Well, because I think in many ways that would co-opt uh, freedom. And uh, this is all about a free choice of him. Uh, He gave us this gift of freedom, and we must uh, give it freely to, we must uh, uh, love him, believe in him, love him, hope in him, uh, using that freedom. What he has done is he has given us, uh, he has given us the hints of that. Clearly, creation speaks of God. Uh, The very fact that uh, all uh, more primitive religions, early religions, have all seeing that there must be forces beyond the merely human, uh, guiding nature, guiding uh, the order in the universe, and so on. Uh, And they tended to deify those forces, as so many of them did, in the animist religions and so on, to ascribe deities to those forces or to the animals or the trees or the birds or, or whatever it may be. But in revealing himself to Moses, he showed us clearly Uh, through the Israelites, that he is a personal God and not an indifferent power behind the universe. 
Uh, and this was something even the philosophers could not arise to because you can't arise to it by natural reason. You know, Aristotle got to the point where he could say that there must be an infinite act to be the cause of all the other acts in the universe that take place down through history. Because everything has a cause. We understand that in physical things, you know, cause and effect. Well, there must be a cause behind the effect of the universe and all the acts, all the activity, if you will, uh, in the universe. And so he arose to that, but only in the most, you know, impersonal philosophical sense of that, because that's what reason can get to. So revelation was needed to give to mankind a personal connection to God, a personal knowledge of God. You know, it's just like you, you can be pen pals with somebody for all your life, but if you only knew them and grew up with them, it would be much different. You would know them so much better than you can through, you know, this indirect exchange. And it's similar with God. He wants us to know to know him. And so the revelation to Moses in which he gave his name as I am, uh, effectively satisfied the argumentation, the reasoned argumentation of the philosophers. He is that infinite and eternal <coughs> act, which is the cause of all other existence. He is self-existing. We are participating in existence. We don't cause ourselves to exist. Uh, we only share in the existence that he has given the universe and given to each of us individually at our conception. So this is why that, that's needed. Uh, this enables us to get to the knowledge of him, get close to the knowledge of him through reason, to see that there is a natural law and a natural order in the universe, not only in man and man's nature, but in the orderly governance of the universe. And to sort of get to that point where, where Aristotle got, but then to be introduced to the, the self-revelation of God to Israel and in and through Christ, this is how you really get to know God personally, and this is where you get to surrender to him. And because all the things about God are effectively supernatural natural, and not demonstrable to reason, faith is not something we can generate internally. It's a power, a gift, which is given to our intellects that we may accept his authority and believe those things which he has revealed about himself and other matters, such as the church and the sacraments and so on. So we can't arise to faith by argumentation and reasoning or get to it by self-choice. I will to believe. You can't do that. All you can do is surrender. Lord, help my unbelief. That's about all you can do. And he will give that readily, and then you will believe in the true sense. You know, as you were as you were giving that answer, not only is everything that you said certainly true, but it also provides further evidence for the. It really sort of reinforces the notion that love is a choice. It, it does. That it's a willing a willing of the good, and His love of the universe willed the good. The good was the existence of the universe, the existence of each of us, a love so great that when we fell and disobeyed Him a love so great that it went the extra step of taking a human nature to it so that the last sacrifice that can be given of love is to give your life. You know, what is the greatest honor we give to a person, whether in the military or a firefighter or a policeman, who gives their lives for the sake of another one? 
it's, it's some kind of metal that demonstrates this selflessness by which they give themselves. And we do the same thing when we talk about marriage as the total gift of one's to the other. So all of these are weak imitations of the love of God for us, but they're also invitations to love him in return and to love all others because of him. And then one other question about this is, does this, um, you know, the parable of the workers who come in during various parts mm-hmm. of the day notwithstanding, does this sort of provide a certain amount of justice as well for you and I who believe without these demonstrative examples? It, it does because it's showing that, uh, yes, we have to provide the, we have to buy, provide that original thought or that coming to the credibility of the existence of God, but he provides the gift of grace. And likewise, justice in the world, or justice in this case in the monetary example that Christ gives, does not exhaust the generosity of the, of the landowner. And it, uh, in a similar way, justice does not exhaust the, the love of God. It's not just what he wants to g- gives to us because we, in some way we owe him or he owes us. He doesn't owe us anything. But he does render injustice for what the church calls merit. The good that we do in cooperating with him, he rewards, and that's merit. But even so, it is well beyond because look at the reward. It's himself. We could never really merit that. And he is always, I mean, sacred scripture says it explicitly in a couple of places, but implies it in both the New and Old Testament, that far better it be for a man to believe without seeing, as opposed to someone who believes when they do see. Right. And it's that not seeing, because here in this case, we we cannot really see. But we see the examples of that. The church has her saints. She has the example of a certain kind of quasi-eternity. She has existed since our Lord, and she will exist till the end of time. And the Catholic Church is the only entity on the planet that can say it has existed that long and can claim that it will exist until the end. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you on this Friday, 833 833- 288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, we've got a featured uh, piece from EWTN Publishing for the month of February, New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God by Jose Carlos Gonzalez Hurtado. This is a book that you'll need to challenge atheists and agnostics to defend their ideologies logically and rationally. 
and to fortify your own needs. You'll find empirical evidence for theism in a way that you can easily understand. And it explains how theism twists reality to justify its view by selective skepticism. That's New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God by Jose Carlos Gonzalez Hurtado. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog by Catholic Shop EWTNRC.com. Wide open phone lines for you, 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. Michael's watching us on YouTube, Colin, and he says, Is it permissible to take a cell phone into confession even if it is turned off? I would say we probably, 90% of people today, to have their cell phone on their person or in their purse if they're a woman. Uh, when they go into the confessional, I think the same uh, respect that you would show in church with air pl- or airplane mode or with the silencer on or anything like that. Obviously, it would be gravely wrong to record a confession. Uh, this likely would get you excommunicated, frankly. Um, so that's not something that could be done. That it's actually been done by a journalist or a number of case a number of years ago went into the confessional in the Vatican and did that. Uh, but that, other than that, the, the, you know, the innocent carrying of, the, of your phone, iPhone or Android or whatever it is, into the confessional is not itself a problem. But show the respect you would show at Mass, that it doesn't interrupt the confession or bother the other people in the confessional line. Uh, Daphne in the U.K. writes in, Lots of people tell me I need to get to know Jesus. How do I know him in a personal way? Is it okay to be scared of him considering I'm very imaginative and, and inclined to make imaginary friends? What I mean to say is how do I know when it is actually Jesus who's talking to my heart? Well, you can't really. Uh, it's a misnomer to think that uh, obviously God is not limited in how he can communicate to us, but that would not be the normal way. Uh, In the church, uh, in the Catholic Church, uh, people who claim such such things usually will talk to their confessor about that. Um, If there uh, seems to be authenticity there uh, because of the nature of their prayer life, then more might come of it. Most of the the great saints uh, who had private revelations, for example, uh, went through all of those stages of, uh, of being examined, as it were, to have their their claims tested. Now, it, it it's certainly true that many many people will simply say, as as in the matter of course, that well, you know, the Lord told me to do something without in indicating that they heard little voices or anything. But they have a strong feeling in their conscience. Uh, you called it the heart. That's often an expression that is used for the conscience. And it can be very, it can be well justified to think that because we should be forming our conscience throughout our life, even though if we know our catechism, we know the commandments, we know, you know, the, the general cases that most of us face in our everyday life, and we go bring them up in confession, and the priest gives us, you know, correction or advice or whatever. And over time, we build up this knowledge and this understanding of how to please God in our actions and so on. And so, yes, I think we can have the consolation of knowing that something we've arrived at and concluded is legitimate and valid. 
you know, and that consolation is something that, however you would state that in your own case, but to to go to the extent that you would lev- place it up to the level of a private revelation or something like that as Jesus speaking personally and that you're hearing him, that would require evaluation by the church at least at some point. So uh, I, I think form your conscience, do what you believe to be right, and as you get facility and the ability to do that regularly and accurately, yes, you can have confidence to act upon such feelings and sentiments when they arise in similar situations, to know that, yes, this is what I've done in the past, it was the right thing, and this is what I will do here. Still two open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Erica, a first-time caller in the great state of Tennessee, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Erica, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Well, thank you for taking my call, Colin. Mm-hmm. I am a um, I am a convert from the United Methodist Church. I was in it for years and years, and now I'm going through RCIA. And um, I've been going through the classes since about September, and I'm going to get confirmed. Um, obviously, on um, oh gosh, what do you guys call it? Easter vigil. Thank you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I'm not sure about all of the theology. I have been taught so much theology that, I mean, I don't know what exactly do I have to believe to honestly say whatever it is okay. that you say to get confirmed. I don't want to... I, I take it very seriously, mm-hmm. and I don't want to diss anything, but I don't... I don't know whether I'm on board for everything or not. So what's, like, the minimum? Well, that's not necessarily the best way to look at it. Uh, you, will be asked, you will be asked to profess the creed in your—and so you have the contents of that. Uh, and in the creed, among the things, you know, uh, I believe, you know, in the Holy Catholic Church— in other words, you're affirming belief that in God's providence and by his pleasure and wisdom, he has established the church which speaks for him. Now, that doesn't mean that you're an educated theologian and that you know everything. But I, I think you could certainly, dis- you should be discussing with somebody your, your, um, you know, your difficulties with, with different, uh, different things, maybe, that seem new to you as a uh, Methodist coming in, discussing those and trying to get them resolved. But I think the attitude should be, Lord, you know, should be the prayer, Lord, I don't understand all that the things the church is teaching, but I believe in you, I believe in your church, and I want to understand with reasons which seem sufficient to me. Give me those reasons. Give me that grace to know that to, and to take that step of faith, because obviously it would be for you. Uh, there's somewhat of an adage in the spiritual life with respect to converts and e- even Catholics, and that if, if you do reduce everything to a theological problem that has to be solved, then of course everybody's going to find something to quibble over, probably. 
But by taking this approach, not that I need to get the answer to my question before I make an act of faith in you and in your church, but rather being disposed to make an act of faith in you and in your church, give me the grace and the light to do that and to to see and to understand. Because understanding is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if you're not prepared to accept the knowledge, which is the gift of science in among the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, it'll be difficult for you to have understanding. If you start with accepting what is said, then the grace of understanding will come. And so this idea of throwing yourself on God for his light and grace, I think, will be the most, uh, most uh, effective way rather than making a precipitous decision for or against being confirmed because of some particular difficulty. Try to resolve the difficulties intellectually. But in the end, the question is, do I believe whether I understand or not? Because obviously, God is asking all of us to make those leaps of faith, even those of us in the church. Uh, you know, And so I think uh, that has to be at least the disposition you, you take uh, up to confirmation. How's that, Erica? All righty. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. We'll keep you in our prayers. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Bruce is in the great state of Mississippi listening on WJXC Radio. Bruce, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. I tried to research. I can't. Find uh, an answer to this one. Mm-hmm. I, uh, in a lot of prayers, like the, like the morning offering, you say, "Oh Jesus, through the immaculate heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings mm-hmm. in union with the holy sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world." And other ones, even offering the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Right, those I'm are the Fatima pretty, prayers. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not a priest, so w- what am I to be able to say that, that I offer? Is it the only clue I have? You know, they say when when we're baptized, we have some kind of a kingly, priestly, and prophetic Correct. ability. Mm-hmm. So does it come from that, or, or how? Yes. I know it's okay to say it, but, I mean, what makes me able to offer something that powerful. Yes, because in baptism, in the sacrament of baptism, you become a priest, prophet, and king after uh, after our Lord. The priestly part is this idea that as a, as a member of the church, uh, the church is the mystical body of Christ, as a member of the church, as the member of his body, uh, you are participating in his priesthood. And it's in that participation that you offer such prayers, such as the Fatima prayers. Uh, Many of those you mentioned are beautiful Fatima prayers. I say every day myself. And so you're doing that because of that priesthood. The priesthood of the clergy, the of the ordained priesthood, is is different. This ordain the the priest is a sacramental sign of Christ doing things which bring to effect in individuals as they come to the church the graces of the particular sacraments which flow from the redemption on the cross. And so he is given that special office in the church. We don't do that. 
So in the Mass, for example, what does the priest pray? Pray that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable. There, you, there was a, a, a not very technically accurate form of it in English before that pray that our sacrifice, it wasn't our sacrifice, exactly for the point you're making. The priest's sacrifice is different from the congregation's sacrifice, which is each individual uniting into their, in using their baptismal priesthood and offering their own lives in sacrifice to God. When we say those prayers, we are acting in that capacity We can't necessarily affect other people, but it's a prayer that God will affect other people because we and others are praying for certain things. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Another uh, shout-out going out to one of our great EWTN affiliates, our good friends in Central Texas, need to hear from you next week. Armor of God Catholic Radio is airing their Spring Pledge Drive next week. So if you're listening to either of their stations, serving Kepner, Cameron, and Temple, Texas, or anywhere, please support your local EWTN Catholic Radio station. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. One open line for you at 833-288-3986. Stephanie is up next. She's in Waxahachie, Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Stephanie, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, guys. Hey there, Um, Steph. Thank you for taking my call, and um, it's not so much a question as an epiphany or the moment of clarity that (laughs) I had that I wanted to share um, and get your thoughts on. Um, Having a lot to do with being a woman, and I guess, you know, during this moment of reflection, you know, during Lent and everything, um, and and I don't know how to bring it, so I'll just try and just blurt it out, and you guys might be able to phrase it more eloquently, is when... When a, when a woman is, when a child is born, a female child is born as a woman, she's born with every child she's ever going to have already within her. Mm-hmm. Okay? So there's that. Okay? But when a woman is pregnant with a female child, not only is she carrying her female child, but she's also carrying every one of her grandchildren so she, because the because the, the eggs are forming inside her female child, mm-hmm. and so her grandchildren not only are carried in one womb but they're carried in two. And I thought that was kind of deep. I was like, mm-hmm. hey, so I've been in two wombs in my lifetime. <laughs> well, uh, yes, in the se- in the sense you described, that's certainly true. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure at what point I think when uh, a girl is born, by that point the, uh, the, the eggs have formed. Uh, remembering these are not human beings at this point. They are, the, as a biologist, uh, they are the gamete of the, of the mother, just as the father has his gametes, which will contribute to the child. But certainly, it's a wonderful connection. I do a lot of, uh, I'm very interested in genetics. That's what I studied in college. Uh, that in uh, cellular biology and the development, uh, development in the cells. 
And so I try to stay up on this, but there are two principal identifiable streams in every one of us, and that is for men the Y chromosome, which comes from their father, which goes back in time, father to father to father to our most ancient ancestor, whom the church calls Adam. And in the mitochondria, the little energy uh, organelle inside the cell, there is the mitochondrial DNA, which goes back from mother to mother to mother, all the way back to our first mother, Eve. And it's a way in which we are, in a sense, uh, attached to all of our ancestors, all the way back to our first parents. And I think that is in, in line with what you're, you're thinking as well, that I think a lot of times we're, we're just dismissed the biological side of these things because the human person is, is the most important thing. But we would not be a human person. We'd just be a person like the angels if we did not have our bodies, if we did not have the ancestry that we have. And about the only thing which is perpetually passed on is that Y chromosome and that mitochondrial DNA. Every other ancestral contribution only goes back about eight or nine generations until it gets so small uh, in, in the living person that it's almost incalculable. So we have, a, we have a limited broad ancestry, but our masculinity and our femininity have two clear straight lines which go back to the beginning. And, of course, the world is denying that today with all the things. So you keep repeating that because it's a beautiful thought about womanhood and about the, the human person in general, that uh, we are connected, to, and we indeed were connected to everybody else, something which science is, is continually demonstrating today in you know, population genetics and so on. God bless you, Stephanie. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Jan is right here in the great state of Alabama listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jan, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I was wanting to know if uh, the Catholics take the Bible literally and what their beliefs are on um, whenever a person dies. Mm-hmm. It's boring. Sure. Yeah, uh, the the church defines what literal means is. Many other theologies, uh, historical and, of course, among uh, Christians today, would reduce literal to simply the words on the page and what we can understand about the words. In other words, if the words say one thing, then this will, you know, this is what we have to try to get at, the meaning of the words. And that's an important point. I'm not trying to dismiss it. But if you limit to that, if you limit it to that, you end up with the result that we basically have in the world, and that is so many interpretations of the scriptures that there's no end of new lines of interpretation, new traditions of interpretation, if you want to call them that. The Catholic Church takes the Bible literally in this way, and that is there are two authors of the text. The Holy Spirit who inspires the author and the human author who writes according to his own means in his own time and according to his own context. So, in the literal meaning of the particular text is, first of all, 
what did the human author mean? And we can, you know, we talk about the historical things in the, uh, in the, in the, in the sacred scriptures that are accounts of history, uh, and therefore should be taken seriously. But they may need explanation in light of the way people viewed history. There, we tend to think of everything in scripture is going to be understood by the 21st century mind indifferently to what was in the mind of the human author. The church never has taken that point of view. It wants to know what the human author said, and because his words are used by God to say other things, other senses of Scripture. So the prophetic things are sometimes contained in, uh, in, in symbolism, which the person writing it might not have known. Would Isaiah have known exactly how a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. How would he? How would he know? And did God enlighten him as to the whole mystery of Christ? No, he was given that to tell and to pass on. We understand that the virgin would be a virgin in the strict sense, and not just a young, unmarried woman who has never born a child. And so, this is the this is how the church tries to look at that. The other part of that is the spiritual part of that. The spiritual understanding comes within the tradition. So in the Catholic Church, we start with the apostolic tradition. And that is in the early centuries, beginning with the apostolic century, the first century. What did the apostles teach? They certainly didn't teach out of a book. They simply taught according to how Christ taught them. And they taught according to his promise at the Last Supper that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. In other words, the Bible is not the end of the understanding of his teaching, but that the Spirit will guide the apostles, indeed guide the church, until the end of time to understand it ever more deeply. And so the Catholic looks back in history and looks, how did that second line of apostles, how did the later apostles or the post-apostolic bishops, how did they understand it? And when she sees that they all understood it the same way, we take that to be the authentic understanding. And you can take every question that comes up in these areas, and you can see that the Catholic position goes back to the early church and to the understanding that was passed on from the first century and developed by the grace of the Holy Spirit in the church. And this is the Holy Spirit helping us get deeper than the text itself which the human author could not foresee all the consequence, consequences of the very words he used and wrote down. Only God could see that. Only he who inspired them to write it down in a particular form could see that, and it's given to the church to unpack that and develop that and explain it progressively and ever more deeply in all the generations. So it's a little bit different than a typical Protestant idea of literal, but it's a tremendous trust in the interpretive tradition that goes back to the apostles through the fathers of the church and down through the centuries in the church. So that's how we would look at that. Um, did you have a particular case that you wanted to ask about, a particular topic? Well, um, I know that the uh, Church of Christ, they believe that the um, church was established whenever the day of Pentecost, and 
they mm-hmm. were the Christians told to preach the word and um, they take the Bible literally. And mm-hmm. I'm just kind of like, I don't really understand how there's scriptures in the Bible. Even I don't understand. And, and, and as a Christian, um, I believe that there's going to be all different religions that are going to be in heaven, but a lot of... Well, religions won't be in heaven, uh, per se, although the Catholic position would be that those who weren't Catholic when they stepped over the threshold, now knowing the truth would be so. But the point is, individuals will be in heaven, and how they get there is taught through the church. Uh, the understanding of how those who had no, through no fault of their own, could get there because they didn't know the church or they bought the propaganda that the church was the whore of Babylon or some other stupidity, uh, then the, God God will judge them. But all, all in heaven will have the same knowledge and understanding of God because God himself will be the source. That's what, at least in Catholicism, when we speak of the beatific vision, when St. Paul says that, you know, now we see in a mirror darkly, but then we will see him face to face the beatific vision, we will understand and know all these things that we knew on earth only in parts and in fragments. We shall know it in God, and it will be the full satisfaction of everything we ever hoped for in this life, and we will have that for eternity. Uh, so uh, I, I think with other churches, you have to ask the question, well, if they go, if they go back to the Christ, where's the evidence? That's a historical statement that demands evidence to support that it's true and not simply the, you know, an argument made up to defend uh, the apostolicity of a particular, you know, uh, group of people who want to do their own teaching and be their own uh, master, so to speak. We've got a question that just coincidentally happens to be a bit of a follow-up here as we go to Betsy, another first-time caller in Dearborn, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Betsy, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi. So I know you don't have to be Catholic to be saved, and I don't want to screw up the words. We, My husband and I went to um, a discussion yesterday. Um, the topic was deadly indifference in different religions, and he had mentioned that even though you don't have to be Catholic, or he's not saying you don't have to be Catholic to be saved, that's me, you go through the Catholic Church, uh, which determines whether or not you're saved. And I could be mm-hmm. screwing this up, so but that was <laughs> the you, perception. You, you've got the gist of it. Yeah. But yeah. Then, I think she's talking about the notion that all salvation comes from the Church. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, let's let's start with that, since that's, I think, the core of the question. The Church's statement, belief is, and out of Scripture, I think it's legitimate unless you uh, can prove that some other entity would fit the bill, and that is that the, the Church is the mystical Christ. It has a head. The head is Jesus Christ. It has a vicar. It's Peter. Christ gives us that information himself, as he says, upon this rock I will build my church. 
doesn't mean that Peter is equal to Christ, but that he is his vicar. He is the one who represents him for a particular generation down, down through time until the end. So the notion is that just as you would say, as any Protestant community would say, well, everybody's saved by Christ. Nobody has only one mediator, Jesus Christ. The church says the same thing, has only one mediator, Jesus Christ. But the church is his cooperator in all centuries to bring the graces of the redemption to the world through the sacraments. This is a kind of mediation. And it identifies the church and her mission given by Christ is completely you know, straightforward in the sacred scripture. He sent the apostles out to teach, to baptize, promising to be with them to the end of the world. They're all dead. Where are the apostles today? The bishops of the Catholic bishops in the church. So you have to address the, the scriptural problem to, to conclude that the church represents Christ in the world. It is not Christ. It doesn't save, but it is his instrument of salvation. And that's where the church starts when answering the question, if somebody is ignorant of this fact, can they be held morally responsible for not knowing it as if, you know, uh, God has a, a checklist that if you're ignorant of what's on the checklist, you should be held morally accountable. He does not. So it's, you know, ignorance, and ignorance can be a very deep thing, especially in people who have been acclimated by their own ecclesiastical tradition in their church to, you know, disbelieve in the Catholic Church, to reject it, to even call it evil and Pope's evil and all of that. So many people have a very high hill to climb to come to an appreciation, much less a belief, that what the Church asserts about herself is true. And that's because, certainly with other baptized Christians who the church would consider invincibly ignorant of the faith for reasons such as I uh, described, uh, they're saved if they die in that great state of grace. The difficulty for the non-Catholic is how do they return to the state of grace if they sin, they commit a grave sin. So these are problems for which theologians have answers, but they're very difficult. As regard to um, what the job of the church is, it's to tell everybody this, because God's grace will lead them if they're open to it and bring them to the truth if they're open to it. He promises everyone that. And also he wants them to come to it freely, accepting faith in the church just as faith in him. So, the problem then becomes regarding those who are outside the church is what, you know, sort of like we keep hearing with presidential scandals over the years, what, what did they know and, and when did they know it? That's the question. So the church identifies itself with Christ, and in this sense, the, the, the church uh, participates in his salvific act of the world down through the centuries uh, in very palpable way through the sacraments, through the sacred ministries of bishops, priests, and deacons, uh, through the participation uh, of, of the laity who are baptized. And so in all of these ways, the church makes that identification with Christ. But for people who don't know or refuse, uh, perhaps because of some obstacle of which, you know, the church is not aware, God ultimately will be the judge of, of the you know, whether their ignorance is sufficient 
to excuse them from having coming into the church. And so those baptized Christians uh, who die in the state of grace uh, would definitely go to purgatory or heaven. Now, outside the, outside the bounds of uh, baptism as the means of salvation, we can't know. And this is where the obligation of the Christian to spread baptism as far as wide as you can and convince people to Christ and bring them to Christ into baptism, that's a, that falls on us. It doesn't fall on God. God is free to give the lights that he wishes to those outside of Christianity and to judge their, uh, judge their motives and so on. And popes have taught, as Pope Pius IX did in the 19th century, that uh, following the natural law and the, and the lights that God gives them, people can come to the gift and receive justice from God. It's simply we can't know that as a means. It's not a means. It's something God does. The church's job is to go into the world and baptize, proclaiming the gospel, and that's, that's the church's job. The rest is, as Father Mitch likes to say, that's above the church's pay grade. Uh, God will make their determination. I want to invite you to check out Pro-Life Weekly Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Analysis uh, this week of the GOP primary in South Carolina and which candidate can best defend life. Plus, we're on the ground at Planned Parenthood during an abortion day with pro-life groups working on the front lines to save souls. That's EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly Sunday morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN. Lulu is watching on YouTube, Colin, and wants to know, do angels have the be- enjoy the beatific vision? Um, some do and some don't. Uh, in the book of Revelation, where it gives a vision which uh, seems to be both historical and prophetic of the woman uh, and the dragon, the dragon sweeps a third of the stars. That's been taken by the church down through the centuries as to be the angels, the angels who said no to God. Uh, and so... Those that said no to God were refused the beatific vision, and they were cast down to the earth. And that probably simply means down to the material universe, and this became their domain of uh, making trouble down through the millennia and the, and the billions of years. As for the angels that did obey God, they were ge- granted in that moment the beatific vision, so that at that point they really became permanently uh, holy um, and saints in the sense that the church uses that term. So we speak of St. Michael, St. Gabriel, St. Um, um, Raphael, and, and, and other angels as saints, just as we do of human beings, uh, because the word simply means holy. Uh, so that's the answer to the question. And unlike us, the angels only had one decision to make in their... Their nature does not permit a change of intellect or will. So... The general common opinion is that in their first act of enlightenment, which unlike us sort of comes progressively after birth, but in their first act of enlightenment came with it the knowledge of God's divine plan in some sense, and the obstacle was likely Christ so that they could have been saved either by affirming salvation in Christ or rejecting it, and they rejected it. Andrew writes in, I've been going to confession for a recurring sin. I haven't committed this sin in a little while, but for some unknown reason, I have this guilty conscience that I still need to go to confession. 
How should I handle this? Well, uh, a good conscience could tell you to go to confession periodically anyway, for starters. You know, at least once a month. Some people have the practice of twice a month, some even weekly. Uh, Pope John Paul II went daily, although he probably didn't need it, but he thought this was a good rectification of his of his human nature, and he did that. Uh, so th- the question always with sins of the past is guilt, guilt, moral guilt is one thing. That's absolved in the confessional. And we have this other little pesky thing called our emotions, and sometimes our our uh, emotional feelings don't catch up with what we know to be true. So it's quite easy for somebody to walk out of the confessional knowing that they've been absolved from their sin, but, you know, well, was I really being sincere? Did I do a good enough examination of conscience? You know, and this, this is an emotional thing, and it should be dismissed based on our faith in the promises of Christ to the church and the power of the sacrament. To set that aside, that's hard because we are, as we've been talking, material creatures and not just spiritual, and sometimes the material side uh, doesn't let go of things like past sins. All right, Noah writes in. Here you go, Colin. Two minutes left in the program. What's the Catholic teaching on predestination? Uh, Predestination. God knows everything, past, present, and future, and his predestination is the application of uh, of that knowledge uh, to uh, our lives in the world so that all the graces that would be necessary for us to be saved are offered to us, and at some point he probably ceases to offer them again to those whom he knows who will be reprobated. So it's not that we are uh, condemned to a certain fate, but rather he knows already before we are created how we will respond to his grace, and he offers it or doesn't offer it accordingly. So there's no friction between predestination in a Catholic understanding and free will. There is not. It respects our free will and he will never coerce our free will, which is actually how we started the show with the knowledge of uh, God and creation. On behalf of our hosts, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it with a new week on Monday. Father John Tregilio will be in the house. Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family, and fellowship on Tuesday. Wednesday, we'll have Father Mitch Pacwa. Thursday, Father Brian Mullady and Colin will be back in the house with us next Friday. Have a terrific weekend. Make sure you go to Mass. And until we get together on Monday, God bless.